Welcome to Mariner Monday. The M's did some sweeping and then took a sweeping this week, and Phil and I are here to talk about the good, bad, and ugly of it all. We talked about the little things that separate the Mariners and baseball's elite, the state of the pitching staff through 18 games, and why Scott Service has embraced at least one of medicinal herbs in Japanese proverbs. And oh yeah, uh, Tiger Woods won the freaking Masters in 2019, which is uh, pretty amazing. So after Phil comes on, my pal Caleb Clearman, the biggest Tiger fan I know, had to call on to remark on what may be the biggest sports story that's happened in our lives. Uh, Shouts out to Caleb for pulling himself together for long enough to come on, uh, and for Phil for bringing the heat, as always, this week. Before the show starts, I wanted to give a real quick shout out to our sponsor, Loco Cold Brew. Uh, Loco is made with the two things you need the most after tying one on. Coconut water for replenishing electrolytes and cold brew coffee for the caffeine. That's it, as there are no other added ingredients in Loco. One 12-ounce can has as much potassium as a banana and more than two cups of coffee worth of caffeine to get your day going. Loco has a unique flavor that I love and can salvage any hungover Sunday or get you through the hump on a particularly groggy midweek day. Thirsty? Search for Loco Coffee on Amazon or you can head to drinklococoffee.com and sign up for their newsletter to get 20% off your first order. One more time, that's drinklococoffee.com. All right, enjoy this week's episode. Phil. Hi. <laughs> What's happy, up? Uh, happy Jackie Robinson Day, man. Hey, happy Jackie Robinson Day. I'm watching uh, the Mets and the Phillies right now, and everyone's wearing 42. It's nice to watch. Cindergaard's pitching to Segura right now. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, it's it's but, very cool. 72 years ago today, uh, Jackie Robinson breaks the baseball's color barrier. Uh, one of those things, like, it's just, that's just a crazy thought that, this this game was just for for white dudes at one point. Yeah, and then you know Roberto Clemente, Jackie Robinson, all those guys got in, and now you know what would you venture to guess is like I'm I'm sure I could look it up, but what would you venture to guess is like the racial mix in baseball? Do you still think it's over fifty percent white? I don't think so. It's I mean it's definitely going down. I, yeah, we could probably look it up, but um, yeah, I just feel like the the presence of of South American players is so high. Um, obviously, uh, you know, African American plight from baseball has been a problem for quite some time. Right. Um, you know, the the Mariners are one of the the I guess better teams in that regard in terms of roster composition. But uh, but even still, um, yeah, it's, it's baseball it's, isn't as popular among African Americans as it should be. And yeah. rem- I remember when Griffey was around, it was like he gave a big bump to that whole to 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 the whole demographic yeah issue i remember it was like mid 2000s and some like it was maybe even like this might be just complete uh slander but i remember someone in like seattle sports media or something saying like you know well adrian beltray is is black it's like well well yeah no i I, yeah (laughs) see i don't even like know how to get into like all those anthropology topics and stuff like well is he this or is he that i don't know yeah yeah, e- either I mean, way, but like when you have role models like Sean Figgins, 
you yes. know, championing that community. How could you ever not have, you know, uh, everyone wanting to play? Yeah, I prefer to focus on the Mike Camerons, Ricky Hendersons, Mark McElmores of the world um, as as great models for that. But yeah, throw Sean in there because, you know. You know, Sean, everyone in Seattle rightly criticizes Sean Figgins, but he actually had a really, really good career before he got to Seattle. <laughs> yes, that was, uh, that's like the, other than that, Miss Lincoln, how is the show type, type question. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Sean, there was a reason we paid him that much money. He just completely died once he got to Seattle. Um. All right. Let's let's talk. I have about... a question for you yeah. before we start. Go for um, it. The get up three up three down. I was thinking about this today. Do you think Jerry Depoto could name every single member of the Mariners organization in terms of like players? Oh wow! Every single roster from from yeah from like uh, rookie ball to to all the way up to the majors. <sighs> And the reason I ask you this is because you sent me that video with um, Logan Gilbert striking out. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. But then, you know, it's just like how many random guys are there on all these teams? I don't think Jerry Depoto could name every single player on his rosters. I think he would. Well, as we know, Jerry, before every media uh, appearance, has to be prepped for, for what's coming his way. So if, if he knew that that was coming, I, he'd prepare for it. And I, I have confidence that he could get it down. But, but uh, if I just found him on the street one day and I said, name me the whole West Virginia power uh, 25-man roster, do you think he could do it? No. But there's also no reason for him to be able to do that. Like, I uh, I mean, I guess there is, but I, I wouldn't be upset. I wouldn't be like, wow, Jerry DePoto doesn't know his team. Like, that is just too much. And there's, yeah, there's other people who can trust How many guys are there? There's 300, 400 guys in the organization, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So do you think it's more important then that he would know all of the personnel – in that regard, or all of the uh, coaching slash front office, all the way from the from the bottom to the top. I think that's the more important part because you're going to have to. It's like any manage. It's any management chain. I if you're the CEO of Amazon, um, you would rather know who is the guy running the warehouse rather than the guy who's packing up the boxes. You know, I think you'd have to have. I, I would much. Feel, I would feel bad if he. I would feel bad about his ability to do his job if he didn't know every single person he's personally hired. Yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, so Jerry Depoto and his Seattle Mariners had an interesting week, and we'll start right there with uh, with our first up here. That uh, the Seattle Mariners had a little bit of everything. Um, you win four games in a row against the Kansas City Royals. Look great. Those were some fun games. Um, and then you go on to get swept uh, at home uh, by, as you called it, the fun police, the Houston Astros. Uh, and so in that, I think you got a little bit of, of kind of both the reasons for optimism and the reasons for thinking this, you know, this is still a work in progress. This is not a fully formed thing yet. But what did you take away from this week? I mean, I think that's exactly it. You see the Mariners and they're going to be able. I think what I have solidified in my mind now and I'm comfortable saying this, small sample size be damned, is that this team is better than what we initially thought. Do you feel the same way? This team's better than when we were doing our series preview and we were saying, oh, maybe 74, 75 wins. I think I'm comfortable in saying that this team is better than that. Yes, barring injury, I think. I, I, there, there's more reason for optimism I think regardless of, of win total this year, I feel better about the Mariners' long-term prospects this year, right now, 18 games into the season, than I did a month and a half ago. Right, but having said that, I think they're going to be better than what I initially thought. I still think 
the teams like the Astros and the Yankees and to some extent even I know the Red Sox are off to a terrible start mm. but even to some extent the Red Sox and all of them are still in a class above the Mariners but I think the Mariners are have every ability in the world from what I've seen in the last two weeks to compete with the likes of the Angels and the Athletics yep. and the the Indians I don't think there's any reason we should think that the Mariners are any worse than any of those teams from what we've seen so far yeah I think there was an old Bill Walsh thing um old very legendary uh 49ers coach was saying how uh you're not competing against 31 other teams in football you're competing against uh like six teams because that's really however many teams there are that are that are worth competing against the teams that you'll end up seeing at the end of the year potentially right and I think that the Mariners are in a position where they are going to wall up a lot of bad teams. And there are a lot of bad teams in baseball. And that's one threshold of being a, a top-tier team is that you beat bad teams. I feel like the Mariners have that part down, similar to where they were last year, where they, they did very well against bad teams and then you know against tougher competition, kind of stiffened up a little bit. And I think we're still at that point, and I think that you saw it with this series. Uh, or with Did these, you notice something in the Astros series, though? It felt different than – and I watched I, – I was at work for the Saturday night game, but I got to watch two out of the three games, so pretty good. I got to see, you know, mm-hmm. you know, a, at least the majority of it. I noticed that usually when it's the Astros beating us, and it's been this case, you know, for five, six years now when the Astros come to town or we go to the Houston, that they always beat us. But this series, it felt a little different. It felt a little bit tighter, like – the gap wasn't – and I know that's crazy to say because we got swept, but every game it felt like the Mariners were playing tough and hanging in. Mm-hmm. Did you feel that way? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, I, I, for me, it came down to three things that were that were perfectly obvious in, in these three games. And this is the re- – I mean, the Astros have been made this well by being in the crucible of, of so many important playoff games down the road or down the last few years. The first being timely hitting. Right, the the Astros were nine of twenty eight in the series with runners in scoring position. The with Mariners, two grand slams. With two grand slams, yes. Uh, and the Mariners, well, first of all, the denominator there, they had twenty eight guys in scoring position over three games. Um, is, right, is a lot different than the Mariners, who had ten guys in scoring position um, and just were got hits in two of those situations. Um, so if you look at the disparity between those numbers, the the offensive ability of the of the Astros is more refined, more dangerous, um, and ultimately. Just you know more more um, you know uh, clutch I guess in that regard um, than the Mariners were in this series and that is uh, you know a, a product of the the pedigree of the guys that they have Springer Bregman um, and so on and so forth although Bregman didn't play until the last game are guys that have been there before and they are truly established major league hitters um, rather than guys who are you know performing well uh, but are going to come down to the mean a little bit with the M's at least. Right. With the Astro, it just felt like the whole series, it was kind of like the Mariners were playing or even the last two weeks, the Mariners have been kind of playing above their means. And, and, you know, whereas with the Astros, when they're doing Astros things, you expect that sort of performance to continue. And with the maybe it's just the and I said something to this effect with you the uh, via text message when I was watching a guy named Robinson Chirinos. And I'm sure most people don't even know who that is, but he's a catcher and now he's a catcher for the Astros. We've seen this guy because he's been in the division with the Rangers. Uh, We've seen him a thousand times, and we've seen him. We know who he is and what he does. But instantly, when he puts on that Astros jersey, 
it just makes me feel like he's a better player than what he actually is. And I know that doesn't make any sense, but it's just something about the Astros organization where they just do everything so well. Yeah, they're going to turn him into Marwin Gonzalez and he'll be a Mariner killer within within a month um, just to, to fill that void that, that Gonzalez left uh, by leaving this year. The other thing that was that was evident was just the strength and, and pedigree of the pitching staff for the for the Astros, both in the starting department and in the bullpen. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, we got to Wade Miley a little bit. That first inning on on Friday night was was an awful lot of fun. Um, but then that bullpen came in in all three games and was just nails. Azuna at the end is just not is just a much better pitcher than anyone that the M's have in their bullpen, which is unfortunate because he's a pretty terrible guy. Exactly. That's you know uh, could be a whole other podcast, but. Um, and then the two guys that they had going Saturday and Sunday for Lander and Cole, as Mitch Haniger said, those those might be the two best right-handed pitchers in baseball. Um, and I I think he's absolutely right. I saw that I saw that quote, and yeah, no, I I couldn't name two better pitchers in the majors than those two guys right there. And then the last thing was just the defense, and and this is the first series that the Mariners have had where they didn't have an error. Uh, but there were moments, uh, especially, in but the- remember what we talked about with exactly. errors, how it's not. And that's for all the listeners. It's not about defense. Isn't about errors, right? It's about your ability to field balls that other people can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so Friday night, there was, um, there was a single hit to hit to left field, um, towards the, towards the, uh, the foul line that ended up just being a single, I think one run scored on the play. Um, but then you texted saying against us, that's a double for sure. And you're, you were absolutely right. Nothing against Domingo Santana, but that's just the way it is. I mean, he's just not that caliber of player to, to go. Off right. And, and it won't show like up that. in the scorebook. It won't show up as an error, but those are the things over the course of the year that add up. And that's the difference between a team like the Astros and a team like the Mariners. Yeah. Yeah. The Astros are, are just airtight on, on a lot of those little things and have that makeup to be a team that's, that's going to do well in the postseason. Uh, as they have for the, for the last three years. So um, some glimmers of hope. I mean, the offense was great, at, at really, really great against Kansas City at times, and then clutch, um, if nothing else, at, in other times. But, um, but uh, yeah, there were just a lot of little things that stack up as to why we're not the Houston Astros yet. But we knew that. And so now it's just kind of a recalibration of, of these early fun times versus uh, actual Major League Baseball expectations. Right. I don't think anyone should be – and there's really that's the thing is there really shouldn't be an, even an alarm bell to ring because we knew who the Mariners were and we've been saying it exercise caution even though the start was really really fun you should exercise caution when you're talking about this team because they however great they looked for the first two weeks there are still teams and we've known this and the data backs us up and supports us there are still teams that are a whole lot better than the Mariners and that's just the reality this is a step back year for us mm-hmm. so. I, I hate I hate that the Astros have to be the ones that pour the cold water on, but uh, you know I guess it's good in a sense too. Yeah, I mean you could be a top ten team in baseball and still miss the playoffs, and I think that if if that were the case with the Mariners, there'd be a lot of you know upset people that we didn't make the playoffs. But uh, you know that would be a massive upgrade over over where we thought this team was um, when we first started potting about this season. So. Uh, we'll see as that goes on. We're playing Cleveland uh, in this next series, which is another good litmus test for where this team's at. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the pitching staff so far and start off with the positive. What is what is there to like about the pitching staff uh, and their performance through uh, through 18 games? 
I mean, Marco Gonzalez has been just a rock for the mm-hmm. Mariners, and he's and it's hard to say, oh, Marco Gonzalez is a great pitcher when you watch. Who was he facing? Was it on? Was that a? Was that Cole or Verlander? I can't even remember. That was Cole head head. Yeah, but you look at Marco Gonzalez and then Garrett Cole, and you're like, well, no, Marco's great too. But Marco is a great pitcher. He's just not quite in that upper echelon. But he's been he's been just he's had not only been as good as last year, but it seems like he's improved a little bit mm-hmm. on uh, on his performance. Um, unfortunately, the other guy that I, I love, Wade LeBlanc, is going to be shelved for a couple weeks, so that's going to be interesting to see. It looks like Eric Swanson's going to come in and, and, and take his place, and we saw a little bit of Eric Swanson in Kansas City. He didn't have a great outing, but some of those things were out of his control. There was a double that, uh, that uh, I think it was Hanager lost in the sun, and you know, he gave up a couple runs, but he, he looked pretty sharp. Um, Kikuchi, we haven't seen a ton of him, and we're probably not going to see a ton of him because I think this next start will be his one-inning one, one, I think. Is that right? The first in Mariners history, right? Yeah, well, first by choice, I <laughs> yeah, think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but there are some good things that are going on with the pitching staff. I think even Felix Hernandez looked pretty decent. If that's what Felix Hernandez is, what he did on Saturday – I think that's something that everyone can live with uh, throughout this season. Don't mm-hmm. you agree? Oh yeah, definitely. He's had he's had two quality starts um, in in his last two starts. Uh, that um, you know, I I think that I wrote in my notes here that what we've seen so far is that Felix Hernandez is not incapable of success, um, which is kind of a weird way to phrase it. But that is kind of what the worry I had this year was that even if he's pitching at his best and is kind of bought into this. Uh, to, to being a new type of pitcher that it's just not good enough. And we've seen uh, that he can be a, a you know competent starter and a part of this rotation, not a complete sieve. Um, you know, we'll see if it holds up. So I got this that. feeling with Felix that, you know, his first three starts that he's had now, he's kind of been holding it together with a little bit of like duct tape and super glue, you know, just like shaky, but he's been getting through them, right? Sure, yeah. Um, and then I went on baseball reference and I wanted to look at his peripheral stats and that kind of backs up that, that theory Felix's ERA and, you know, the runs he's allowed are a lot lower than what would be necessarily backed up by analytics. So I'm sure the front office guys are seeing that and, and every front office would be seeing that house of cards, but his, yeah, his peripheral stats are a lot worse than his on field performance. So that's something to be concerned about going forward because mm-hmm. a lot of those times when he's getting out of those innings, you know, he might not be getting out of them in the future just because, you know, the ball will bounce here or there right. or whichever which way and you can't necessarily control that. Right. You see with Cole and Verlander on the other side of what it's like to have a pitcher who is in complete control of their of their destiny and of their outcome on that on that given day. I don't know if the Mariners really have that. I feel like they have um, great game plans and they have guys who are pitching confidently and have a have a really you know firm grasp on, on their abilities and how to pull it off uh, but you know that's a lot of winning on the margins and as we found right. out last year when you and do that's that, what that's a great way to put it winning on the margins because that's what it feels like with this staff it's they don't have any of those guys who have that blow away stuff like Cole or Verlander who if they make a mistake with a pitch still might not be easy ball to hit if if, if Wade LeBlanc makes a mistake on a pitch it's a home run, you know? Mm-hmm. Right, right, exactly. Um, all right, so that's kind of the starting staff. I mean, every, everyone on the starting staff has had good outings and, and not so good outings. But the bullpen um, we was much maligned at least two weeks ago, a little bit less maligned as of last week. 
and then had an overall pretty good week, I'd say, um, this week in, in comparison to how, how it's gone so far. But I'm asking you to rank. Uh, if, if you see Scott Service calling to the pen um, and someone's going out there, it's a one-run game, the Mariners are holding onto a lead, there's guys on second and third, one out, right? Which guy coming out of the pen right now do you feel most confident is going to get out of that situation? I'm, I'd probably say Anthony Swarzak, um, just because of the pedigree that he has. He ha, ha, He's probably the only, not probably, he is the only uh, reliever in the bullpen that has actually put together a full season of not only competency, but all-star caliber play. And when I look at him and I look at the stuff and I look at his control and his command of his pitches, he seems to be the one that... I would trust the most. There's other guys in the bullpen that have better stuff, like Brandon Brennan and even Connor Sadzak. Mm-hmm. But the guy who I trust the most is Anthony Swarzak. Those other two guys that you just mentioned uh, would be the other two candidates I have for this. I also had Swarzak in there, but um, Brennan has been nails. I, I think I think Brennan is insane. And I and uh, Jerry Depoto had a great quote about uh, how starting pitchers are very good at breathing out of their nose. Right, they're very composed, um, yep. very long view. And then uh, relievers breathe out of their mouths, and they're just psychopaths. They're mouth breathers. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they're they're just cut a little bit differently. And Brennan is absolutely a mouth breather. Like he just he's one of those guys that can't control his emotions after he does well, uh, which I I am fond of because I sometimes feel that way as well. Like playing ping pong, and I'm just like doing giant fist, fist pumps at work. Um, well, he's he's. I mean, I guess to be a reliever, you kind of have to be a psychopath because some of the situations that you come in are not at, oh. with a with a starter you're kind of the master of your own destiny right you start every inning zero balls zero strikes zero runners on relievers don't get that luxury they have to come into like some really ruthless situations like you saw chase and bradford against the red Sox. you have to kind of have a screw loose to be able to want to willingly do that and a exactly. lot of these guys isn't, isn't by choice but still you know they have to adapt to that sort of new environment yeah so i'm a big fan of brennan even though it was it was his uh his loss yesterday um in the in the game against houston but um but yeah definitely a good find for them um as you said as you went over a rule five guy that um that has taken off and the the things not to like i want to get your opinion on this because uh alex ssn on on twitter uh, seattle sportsnet um pointed out i fell asleep on friday during the game but he was he was making um a big point about how Scott Service leaving Ruben Alaniz in after walking the bases loaded, uh, leading to the second Grand Slam, was just a, a really bad move for a rookie. Well, it's unexcusable. I, I mean, I, I was going to text you, but I know I knew you were asleep because you got that three-hour time difference. Right. But I was so livid because we've talked about this on the podcast before. Not only is Alaniz walk the bases loaded, which is unexcusable, but he's a guy that you just brought up from AAA. It's not like Against he's one Astros. of those veteran guys. Yeah, he's not one of those veteran guys who you're like, okay, he let him settle in. You have to be more willing to have a tight leash with young guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, every manager in baseball, except for Scott Service, I think pulls pulls him out there. I think part of the problem is that who that discussion we just had about Swarzak, Brennan, and and Sadzak. I mean, those are three guys that you trust, but not to the utmost level where you have just a, a, a Alex Colome or a um, you know. A, Juan Acosta that you can just throw to. Well, yeah, Diaz as well. Um, That you can just throw to to get out of that situation because they've been through it so many times. However, there have been guys who have been through it more times than than a rookie in his first Major League appearance, Um, which is, yeah, it it did seem, even though I didn't see it live, 
Um, it's just something that that's given that we've already talked about his his bullpen management um, and leaving uh, leaving that was Hunter Strickland in early in the season. And I think it was the M's first loss through something similar. Although there was an injury there, uh, it's it's just a little weird. Let me ask you to speculate on something for a second. That you know, there's no there's no data or anything that could back up this uh, gut feeling I have, but I, I have this feeling. Do you think Jerry Depoto kind of tells Scott Service like, "Hey, I want you to give this guy a long look tonight," or something along those lines? Like, I want to see this guy. Or is it, do, I guess my question to you is: Do you think uh, Scott Service has complete control of what's going on over the field? I think that there's absolutely directives that come in. And I think that this is a well-run enough organization where those directives are uh, stopped short of being micromanagement um, because that is just something that, that never works at any level. Uh, but I think it would be kind of almost irresponsible if DePoto wasn't saying those types of things and if there wasn't that communication. And hopefully it's a two-way thing where everyone's in agreement that a guy like Alanis is in there um, and is up right, there but to where's get the line? Exposure. Exactly. Like, do you think? Do you think that? Do you think that uh, service was afraid to pull him out because oh Jerry told me I have to mm. give this guy a long look tonight or something like that? No, no, because I think that that's something where service could just say, "Listen, I've I've been in baseball for so long. I've I've caught caught guys who just didn't have it, and I know when they get out of that. Um, or that's what he, he should be saying at least. And obviously, we didn't see that. Um, so it is it is interesting because to something that. Anytime that the the common or the lay fan, even though I'd put you and and Seattle Sportsnet at the the top of that list, um, can correctly diagnose what should happen, it's not a good thing when the the team actually doesn't do it. I mean, it's it's like the Seahawks not not running the ball or not throwing the ball enough. Um, you know, the same thing with the the Husky football team, uh, so on and so forth. When simple things that should help a team do really well aren't happening uh, and aren't even being tried it's it's problematic and and here's the last point that i want to make about this is that service knows like you said he's been a catcher for a long time but he knows when guys either and that's the thing with this whole hunter strickland thing that keeps bothering me and then the same thing with alanese i just don't understand why he's so reluctant to pull a guy when he clearly doesn't have it is it like a confidence issue he doesn't want to pull a guy too early but either way it's it's he has had way more patience with a bullpen than any manager has, you know, the right to be. And I, it's just frustrating for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if that patience was warranted over multiple seasons of productivity in the majors, that's one thing, but, uh, right. Everyone's a fresh face right now. Yeah. Uh, no one, no one has proven anything in that bullpen. If it's Diaz struggling, that's another story, but it's not. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, we, you know, it was something that we wanted to pay attention to after the, the, uh, the Strickland injury originally and something that, uh, has come up again. Um, so, you know, just keep an eye on that. But last point about the bullpen is I've heard this one being thrown around a lot and I want to address this because it's totally an incorrect way to look at them. I, when Corey Gearin walked those three guys and I went and I talked to somebody about the game and, their defense of, of not pulling him was, well, who else is in the bullpen? Who else do they have? The Mariners actually are going with a nine-man bullpen right now, which is more than, I'd say, 70% of teams. Almost 70, 70-80% of teams have a eight-man bullpen. So the Mariners usually have more guys in their bullpen to keep them all fresh and ready to go than 
80% of teams. So the whole who, well, who else can he go to? It's a total bunch of malarkey, and it's not a, it's not a reasonable excuse. Yeah, and in the Alanis example, it's well, uh, how about not a rookie in his first ever appearance um, in that in that in that situation? I mean, I get the whole righty righty thing with Guriel up there, but um, there's other right-handed pitchers that uh, are more equipped for that situation. Totally. To our third out here, the, the Mariners are on an 18-game home run streak, uh, which is impressive. Yeah, this one's more positive. Huh? Yeah, it's 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 cool. Uh, my question to you, and this is kind of a rhetorical question as soon as it comes out of my mouth, but is it that important that there's an 18-game home run streak to start the season? No, um, I don't think it's it's important, but was winning 116 games important? Obviously not, because we lost in the second round of the playoffs, but it is something that it's gone beyond the point of like, oh, this is a fluky little thing. The Mariners have legit plow- power. Like they can hit the ball out of the ballpark. That has been something that that's not a small sample size thing anymore. That's real. The Mariners are going to hit for a lot of power this year. And I think it's something that's really cool. And it's just nice to see a, an on-field statistic such as home runs back up the fact of what we kind of saw with our eyes that this team's going to be able to drive the ball. Yeah, I, I had here that it's it's uh it's a nice symbolic thing. Like 18, 18 home runs gets people tuning in to Mariners box scores at the end of the day. Um, you know, like I get the MLB notifications of the Mariners only hit dingers, fire emoji, fire emoji, fire emoji. Every, yeah. <laughs> every time it they... builds up it builds up a little lore in the fan base, and that's never a bad thing. Right. So under that, under the eighteen home runs is kind of our more important figures, which are that we have we're leading the league in, in home runs with thirty nine uh, and we're we're second in the league, I think, with uh, with more than seven runs per game. Both stats that the Mariners were a below league average in last year, and that's kind of wild given the fact of of the power that has less, left this lineup. And if you dig into those numbers even a little deeper, what you'll find is the plate discipline numbers, which are allowing the Mariners to drive the ball out of the ballpark. Mm-hmm. The Mariners are the second best team in all of the majors right now at not swinging at pitches outside of the zone compared to last year where they were the worst team in the majors at swinging at pitches outside of the zone. So there's been a fundamental shift in the philosophy at the plate, and I think a lot of that, we mentioned this guy last week in the Yellow Hydro of the Week uh, segment, but Tim Laker, he's got to have a lot of of credit uh, coming his way for his ability to change the approach at the plate so dramatically in one year. Perfect segue to to our Let's Get Smarter segment, which will be about uh, an article – Written by Jeff Pers- Jeff Passan of ESPN, uh, the same guy who kind of broke the news this this summer or this uh, this winter, I should say that um, that that uh, the proverbial ish was going to hit the fan, um, and that the Mariners were about to make a, a, a big series of trades. They did that, obviously. Uh, the title of this week's article was "The Mariners Are Playing Like Baseball's Best Team," uh, which immediately takes over for that 538 article um, in 2014 about how the Mariners were definitely going to make the playoffs. Um, oh yeah, it was written in like. Late <laughs> I've August. seen that one before. That one gets retweeted when the Mariners are doing bad. Yeah, right. So, so Jeff Passan's article um, might take over for the most dooming artifact in in Seattle, in Seattle Mariners lore. Um, but there were some really good nuggets in there, especially about how plate discipline. And I think my numbers are a day behind yours here because I had them as uh, the third lowest O swing percentage, meaning swings outside of the of the strike zone. Um, and then the 11th highest Z swing percentage so uh, of pitches in the strike zone. So doing a much better job of hitting uh, the pitches that you do want to be swinging at or swinging. Remember at. when we talked about D Gordon and uh, you asked me if he's going to get more or less than how many walks was it? 15, 35. <laughs> 
Well, no, I said he's going to get 35, right? Yeah, you wish and, it was 15, yeah. Yeah, well, anyway. But, well, he's actually, he's doing okay. I think he has three this year so far. As many so as Mitch Haniger does, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. He, he's doing okay. But the numbers that I used to back that up were his spring training O and Z swings, right? His mm-hmm. outside the zone chase and then his inside the zone swings. And you look at guys like Ryan Healy, who had a massive problem with that last year, and his numbers have improved you look at domingo santana who's always had a big problem with that and his numbers have improved and because of those things i mean it all starts at the count you're in Uh, it's it doesn't take a genius to figure out and it doesn't take looking like too hard at like analytics to understand that if you're in a 2-0 count you're gonna get a lot better pitches to see than if you're in a 1-1 or an 0-2 count and you can control that somewhat based on the pitches that you choose to swing at. If the guy's going to throw you nothing but strikes, then, you know, you're going to have to hit those. But swinging at balls is one of the most damaging things that a guy can do at the plate. And Mm -hmm. for the Mariners to have stopped doing that is vitally important. It was, I I remember this, you saying that reminded me of, of uh, when Jerry DePoto was first hired, it was probably like a month after that, the Mariners released this video um, talking about the importance of the one-one count and how how the the difference of a ball and a strike at a one-one count uh, massively changes the outcome of a, at a at an at bat, which makes total sense because a one and two count is much different than a two and one count. Um, totally. Two and you one look count, at any of the numbers, the power numbers, the on base numbers, any of that stuff, they swing so dramatically from pitch to pitch. Mm-hmm. And a two one count, you're you know the pitcher is in much less control than they would be in a one two, and the the array of pitches that they can feel comfortable throwing at you. And I remember the Mariners put that video out, and it was kind of this you know as we've seen many times with with Jerry putting the the PR of what type of team he wants out there, uh, control the zone, speed, athletic. And they haven't done any of the videos since, I don't think, but it was interesting that that's the very first one that they led with. Um, and it was so br- bringing that whole back to what you were talking about of this has been the plan since they got there. It's just this team has started to embrace it a little bit more, a lot more, actually, uh, than any of uh, of DePoto's previous previous rosters. So the best example I can use for this is, did you, that first inning against Wade Miley, everyone kind of knows the scouting report on Wade Miley, right? Is he is a guy who tries to make his money and try to make his living by getting guys to chase the ball outside of the zone. That's always who Wade Miley's been. That's how he's always operated. He starts his breaking ball inside the zone and lets it drop out, and he hopes for the swings on those pitches. And you could see him in that first inning getting so visibly frustrated. There was like a nine pitch at bat to Jay Bruce where Bruce was fouling off everything and not chasing a single thing outside of the strike zone. And it ended with a walk. It didn't even end with an RBI, anything like that. But you could see on Miley's face how frustrated he was. And that makes a difference. You know, we as much as we love to talk about numbers and, and this and that, a guy's mentality when he's on the when he's on the mound matters just as much, if not more. If he's getting so frustrated that he can't get the guys to chase, he's going to make a mistake. And you saw him make a mistake, and, and the Mariners benefited because of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they really got to to Miley, and, and I think it was what was that a forty pitch inning? Uh, to, yeah, to start off the the first on Friday, um, and had you and I talking about how peak Ichiro would have just been a just a perfect Depoto player. Um, it would have had multiple ten pitch at bats every single game, and. Um, it would have just been special to watch, but um, you know, unfortunately, the uh, the vision wasn't quite there in 2001 um, as it is now. But you know who's got to be one of uh, Depoto's favorite guys to watch on this team is Narvaez. Yeah, yes, yeah, he's good every at that game. Too. It feels like every single game he has a 10 pitch at bat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think in that first inning we saw Bruce go nine pitches, if not more. Santana, same thing. 
Um, so this is this is something that that uh, has been has been taught even to the most free of swingers, uh, like like you were saying, D. Gordon, Ryan Healy, um, and and Domingo Santana. One other thing that was brought up in that Passan article, and this is kind of out, ex- can extend outside of baseball and really to all walks of life, but was this idea of kaizen, which is uh, from it's this idea of continuous improvement, um, which is obviously similar to growth mindset and any of your your typical. Mm-hmm. You know, self betterment prophecies or, or things that are not prophecies, but principles um, that that people can rely on. But it's it's sticky, right? It sounds good, kaizen. But Scott Service apparently got it from this uh, Masaki Imai book um, in in about you know Japanese politics and how he's adopted it. And uh, I told you straight off the bat, I call absolute BS on this. I don't think that Scott Service read that book. I think that he, like me, first heard of kaizen uh, by watching the Great British Baking Show. Uh, season two of Great British Breaking Show, Kimberly uh, was a huge proponent of, of Kaizen. Never let herself get too high, never let herself get too low. You know, she'd make she'd make a nice turnover, um, and she would get really good feedback on it. But she just stayed composed and took took her lessons going forward. She was a boss. Uh, Francis beating her in the final round was an absolute joke. I would I would go head to head with anyone who. Said so you that. actually watched the whole season then? Oh, I, I love this show. Anyone is it who a says, good show? Anyone who says that Francis should have beat Kimberly or Ruby, by the way, in that series, uh, is uh, just absurd and borderline racist. And I will I will defend that to my death. But anyways, yeah, Great British British Baking Show is awesome. I would. Uh, I would highly recommend that to anyone as their their new stress relief show, especially if you like like Chopped, but you don't. I love Chopped. Chopped's one of my favorite shows. You know what though about like shows like cooking shows and stuff like that? I know it's crazy, but it actually kind of stresses me out when I have to like because it's like almost like this automatic like I'm Pavlov dogs sort of situation <laughs> with me. Like anytime there's food or anything like on the grill or anything, I start getting nervous about work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's true. For for someone like you in the restaurant industry, it might be better to to stick away. But the it, the great thing about Great British Baking Show is that there's no you know like chop there's uh, I don't even know what the prize is five thousand or whatever yeah and these yeah. people are also like chefs and so it, it's kind of a like a marketing play too of like oh I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a chopped winning chef these people are just like hobby bakers and they're they're nails at it they're like they're they're like the best baker you would possibly know and they don't even do it all the time um, but anyways Kimberly in that show brought up kaizen. And I heard it there first before I read this this uh, this this piece about uh, about this year, and so I'm uh, I'm you know I I'm I'm totally fine calling out Jerry Depoto. I'm gonna extend it to Scott Service. I don't think that he got kaizen from a, a Japanese manuscript manuscript. So you know what's interesting is I before the season started, there was this Deadspin article. I never sent it to you. I don't know if you've even seen it, but uh, it was a kind of a snarky article written about the Mariners, and the title was. Instead of opting for the path of wins, the Mariners opt for the path of enlightenment or something like that. And it was it was a it was a snarky article because like Depoto and I think Service were interviewed by somebody by the in the Seattle Times and then I got picked up by Deadspin talking about how they're doing a bunch of like with their player development program, they're doing a bunch of things like meditation and community service and yoga and stuff like that that doesn't necessarily it's not like hitting drills or fielding drills or hardcore baseball mm-hmm. um attributes but you know how they're sort of trying to improve their players in like these alternative methods and deadspin absolutely dragged them for it so it was funny to see that you know service is now mentioning like this east eastern philosophy i wonder if i wonder if uh if if that's gonna get picked up too but i kind of listen 
clearly whatever the Mariners have done in the last 20 years hasn't worked. Why not try something unique and interesting? And maybe they will be the next like, oh, let's see what are the Mariners doing now instead of what are the Astros doing now? Yeah. I, I, mean, I like that idea. Joe Madden was bringing like shamans into into the, the, the Tampa and Chicago uh clubhouses to to help them get out of losing streaks and stuff like that and you know like crazy stuff and trying new things uh is just it's a product of being an inventive and an outside the box thinker and that's that's totally fine scott service embracing this is is great i i love it um i just wish that in that passant article the anecdote about seeing the the kaizen part of it would have been like I, I opened the door to Scott Service's office and billows of white smoke came out <laughs> <laughs> smelling of foreign herbs and like Scott Service is just off his mind on peyote to, like making his lineup cards. That's what I wanted. <laughs> Maybe the Mariners just need some of that like to just get break out of whatever they're in right now. Because... Maybe they should do the Seattle Mariners baking show. That would be – that's what I want. That's <laughs> that's my type of thing. Is, is Who do you think out. the best baker on the Mariners would be just by looking at the person? Is that a serious question? Yeah. Daniel Vogelbach. You think so? But I feel like he likes to eat the pastries. Maybe he wouldn't be a great baker of them. I think he's a patient guy. I think he's watched people in his life make great food and has has really learned from it. Um, and he can't help himself from, you know, eating things before they're supposed to be, you know, come out of the oven and things like that. But he truly has an appreciation. Uh, as as Passan wrote, he's an egghead, right? He absorbs a lot of information. Yeah. So that's, that's my vote. Uh, okay. How have you embraced Kaizen as you uh, as you are yourself a restaurateur and uh, are building up three very successful restaurants? Uh, and yes, this is this is ad time. So so sell your business. How 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 have you uh, how have you gotten better as a restaurant employee since you first started doing this? You know what's interesting is that I actually once that uh, Kaizen thing I read that article from Jeff Bazan. I was thinking about it, and the thing that they mentioned in there that we haven't mentioned yet is it's not only a continuous improvement, like a growth mindset thing, right? It's more of a top down philosophy. It's like streamlining the business in a way um, to basically identify problems, change the behavior of the problem, then see if that ultimately ends up in, in improving the result and then reevaluating, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I thought that was like an interesting thing because it's not like an ad hoc solution. Like, Oh, there's a problem let's just put some duct tape on it. It's like more of like a top down organizational philosophy of like identifying and then working through issues, which is really cool. I mean, because when I was a kid and when my dad was, uh, you know, running the restaurant, my dad's like an old school guy. He would have nothing to say about like any like sort of Eastern philosophy or anything like that. But he grinded really hard as a result. And maybe I thought through my life, I might not have to work that hard if I work a little smarter. So Maybe that'll work, maybe it won't. But right now, I mean, I try to embrace any sort of new age solutions that I can that I think make sense and when they do make sense. And I think as a result, and I know it helps having a brother who also shares the burden with me, but I think as a result, we've done things in a little bit of a smarter – my dad was a really, really smart guy, and he's the reason the food is amazing and the service is amazing and everything. But I think that there's a little bit of something to be said for um, shifting your approach, just like you have to shift your approach at the plate. Love it. Love it. Go, uh, go eat at Carmine's. Go eat at Intermezzo, where uh, Intermezzo. I'm sorry, my Italian sucks. Uh, where uh, honestly, where, I don't even say it right. So <laughs> where where uh, where Kaizen is embraced and uh, and it will just be a better experience every single time you go because these guys are. I gotta tell you, last paying the bills type thing. Uh, Friday night after the Mariners game, 
um, which is a, this is a big shout out to Mariners fans. I have not seen intermezzo packed with so many people wearing Mariners paraphernalia, maybe in the whole time we've been open for, we're open five years now. That was the busiest, not, it wasn't the busiest it's ever been, but it was the busiest it's ever been with Mariners fans. Great to hear. Was, uh, was Scott service using any Mariners paraphernalia? If you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I knew you were going to take the it's just like the insemination thing last week I did some more I did some more research on that and there is a secondary uh there is a secondary meaning to the word but definitely not probably appropriate for a podcast a PG-13 podcast yeah that's uh that's a that's a weekly ritual is is me blowing one of your words out of proportion um and I, appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate you not doing it to me because I'm sure I'm sure it happens uh let's uh let's go around the league a little bit I want to talk about the the Tampa Bay Rays uh, the twelve and four Rays, who are up five mm-hmm. and a half games in the AL East, over of course the Baltimore Orioles. Go figure. Uh, Did you see Chris Davis? Uh, he finally got a hit. I'm Chris, really happy for him. Chris Davis got a hit. He got a home run today. He ruined ruined the uh, the Red Sox matinee today. It was uh, it was a, it was a big weekend for for a big week. Could you imagine how Chris. stressful that would be? I know it's like oh he makes so much money he can handle it whatever. But no one likes to suck at their job, regardless think, of how much money you make. I think Chris Davis has so much chewing tobacco in his mouth that he really has no idea what's going on. <laughs> Did you see after he got that hit, he he motioned to like take the ball, like get the ball into the dugout so he could keep it? That was super funny. Yeah, no, he's actually motioning for someone to bring a bucket so he could spit it all out. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Ray, the Rays are twelve and four. They have the best team ERA in baseball, uh, second in strikeouts per nine innings. They um they are similar to the Mariners, obviously in a lot of ways. They've made a lot of trades with each other um, to acquire. I think guys. that's a good sign, right? I think it is. Is too. that a good sign? I think it's I think it's two teams that have the same mindset, and obviously one guy doesn't work for one team's set of circumstances, and vice versa. Um, and right, they, but they kind of are thinking about things on the same page, like in terms of values of players. That's why they're able to get so many deals done with each other. Yes, and we've seen it in basketball. The the Houston Rockets are great examples of this, where they have just because their general manager is insane and is always working deals, Daryl Morey, there's kind of a, a, a mutual back-scratching effect that happens sometimes in terms of taking on a little bit of money to help a team out and uh, and vice versa, where these, 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 you know, these wheels uh, are constantly being greased and both the, the Rays front office and the Mariners front office obviously share that belief. But anyways, you talk about a team that's progressive, reading an article about them, they have a mental skills coach who they, uh, the team uh, just loves Ryan Sua, um, I, I the 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 Chris Archer trade with Tampa last year. Obviously, their their best pitcher at the time. They weren't necessarily in contention, uh, but this was just a positively uh, Belichickian move to pull it off. They weren't in contention. They trade Chris Archer to get the Pirates' top two prospects so that the Pirates can make a playoff push. Um, and now those two top two prospects, Tyler Glasnow and Austin Meadows, are just destroying uh, Major League Baseball. Uh, for for the Rays, so it was. It's been um a really. I mean, you, this is a ninety win team last year. You know what that deal reminds me of? That's just like Eric Bedard for Adam Jones times yeah. two. You know what I mean? That that deal feels so similar. Yeah, good point. And George Cheryl in there. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. So you, I mean, you have this team that's in buy now, win win now mode for whatever reason, giving up on their their long term future, and you see the Rays uh paint or you know. They, they had Archer on team control. It wasn't even that big of a contract, but just one of those things where it's like you can't pass that deal up. Where you have one one, you know, B plus player, but you have a chance to get two A minus guys. You need right. time. 
And you know what's interesting you mentioned about the Rays having the best team ERA and all that kind of stuff? Mm. How I don't even want to like muddy the waters here, but how much credit are you willing to give Mike Zanino for that? Well, I mean, you could you could break it down to a granular level and took a look at his pitch framing, and I think we did that a couple weeks ago, and he was right around where he was with Seattle and on kind of fringe top 10 in pitchers in terms of you know, run saved in that department, but it has to matter, right? I mean, there's, there's no, yeah. How much it. outside of like in ta- uh, tangible stuff, like just man, knowing how to call the game, mm-hmm. uh, managing the staff, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I was going to talk about Zanino because in the article I read, um, to, that was praising their mental skills coach, the, the, the athletic writer for the, for Tampa had followed them, um, and had documented their day whereas the team was waiting through a rain delay in Chicago uh, at guaranteed rate field, which I cannot believe is, is the name of that stadium. But uh, anyways, Mike Zanino in the rain delay um, says, says this quote that just was so funny to me. He says, if a plane can land, then we can play. And it was literally, <laughs> <laughs> which just sounds like he's Ernie Banks of like, let's play too back in, you know, 1950, whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, it was just like, this is either like this funny Mike Zanino is just such a happy-go-lucky guy or like Mike Zanino is just this like old, psychopath old, old old maybe that but old man who's just like out there playing with a bunch of young guys um but yeah it was it was funny and and so Mike Zanino uh who was seen breaking a bat over his knee last week is uh is still having a positive impact on the race uh yeah no he's he's an absolutely he's been even worse at the plate this year (laughs) than he ever was with the mariners but i'm hesitant to say he's been bad i just because i don't know catching defense and like the catcher's impact on the game is one of those things that i don't know maybe eventually analytics will catch up but i don't know we're accurate if we're accurately accounting for all the things they do and maybe this is because i was a catcher by nature growing up and I kind of understand these things like a little bit in, more intuitively, but like they don't catch a good catcher has such an unbelievable amount of value to a team. I think more than any other position on the field. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you're seeing it in two different ways where an offensive catcher is really helping the Mariners out, but also, um, you know, the, the purely defensive and ace catcher in that regard is, is having a positive effect uh, on the Rays. All right, so the Rays are fun. They're they're uh, they're off to a great start. Um, we'll see if they can keep it up against against the Yankees and uh, and Red Sox. But let's step back for a second and talk about a guy um, that many might see as this is interesting that we're talking about a guy who's a, a 26th round pick in 2015, uh, LJ Newsom. What about LJ uh, made you text me saying we have to talk about LJ Newsom this week? Okay, so LJ Newsom, the Mariners just released, or a bunch of different publications released their top 30 prospects for every team. And LJ Newsom, you want to guess how many top 30 lists he was on for the Mariners? I'd say zero. Yeah, he was on zero, okay? But here's the thing. the He was a guy who, if he was ever going to make the majors, it would be in the same context as a late, uh, Jamie Moyer or a Wade LeBlanc. Uh, he's a soft-tossing lefty who has, you know, he does have very, very good control and command of all of his pitches, both his off-speed and his fastball. But he was, all, he was always capped. His abilities and his ceiling were always capped by the fact that he threw 85, 86 miles an hour, and he didn't strike anybody out. I'm just going to read LJ Newsom's first three starts uh, in, uh, let's say, high A. He's in high A ball right now. He's in Modesto. He's for the Modesto nuts right now. Go nuts. But anyway. 16.2 innings pitched in those three starts. 
He's given up two runs. He struck out 30, 30 guys. And that gives him a strikeouts per nine of 16.2. And so obviously everyone, I've been reading some blogs and stuff like, what's going on with this guy? How is he so all of a sudden? He's never had more, let's see, in his career. What's his highest? I have his Wikipedia page pulled up here. Um, his highest uh, total before that was 7.7 strikeouts per nine. So he's doubled that plus some. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, you, you remember when Jerry Depoto was talking on the wheelhouse about the gas camp, right? Yeah, is this, is this the, the guy that gets the, the uh, invites to spring training based off of controlling the zone? Or is that different? That's different. Gas camp was the Mariners' uh, player development program. Oh, right. Pick, picking guys throughout their system that they thought, hey, I'm looking at this guy's body type and his mechanics and everything like that. And I think there's some velocity in his body that he has not unlocked yet. Let's bring him to this camp and let's tinker with him a little bit, not make any wholesale changes, but just tinker with him and see if we can unlock an extra couple miles per hour on his fastball and, you know, a little bit more break on his breaking ball and stuff like that. And apparently this guy was the valedictorian of gas camp because he's throwing the ball like six miles an hour harder now than he was. And for a guy like that, that'll move him from, you know, fringe of – even making the minor league rosters to a guy that you're going to actually have to look out for going forward. Yeah. So he, uh, as mentioned, I, I was looking at the wrong thing. He, uh, he won last year. So going to last year's spring training, not this most recent one, uh, the award throughout the Mariners minor league system for being the best at controlling the zone, uh, across the organization to get a spring training invite that year. He had 16 walks over 130 innings pitched, um, this is which before, is amazing. Yeah, this is before his gas camp uh, participation. He was still very effective on um, on on not putting guys on base, you know, uh, via walk. Um, but then most recently, last week, uh, on sixty three pitches, had nine strikeouts um, in in a game for Modesto, which is pretty crazy for a guy that, as you said, does not throw very hard uh, to get strikeout numbers like that. Which means just absolute killer precision um, and just being a, an absolute sniper out there. So. Uh, yeah, an interesting guy to watch and something that somebody that clearly uh, takes well to coaching. Right. Could you imagine if he could still maintain those base on balls through nine percentages and add some velocity to what he's doing? He could be a really, really interesting prospect going forward. And he's still very young. He's only 22. Mm, yeah. And it's just things like this that, that give you more glimpses of confidence that this organization has the ability to uh, take, obviously, everyone that comes into Major League Baseball has some modicum of talent, but take that and shape it into something that could be a valuable commodity going forward. Um, as you said many times, that player development is is the new uh, the new wave of of, uh, of what's important with with how you can judge you know front offices. Um, and so, an example as small as LJ Newsom is is something to to take away. That's always what I yeah. I mean, even if he doesn't ever make it or pan out in the majors, I still take this as a hugely positive thing for the Mariners that they were able because it means they're able to see and identify guys that they think they can work with and then actually produce results and and tangibly improve them. Mm-hmm. Whether we, or not this guy makes the majors is kind of inconsequential to the larger picture of things. Right, as we've seen with with guys like Mitch Haniger and Domingo Santana um, in the in the lineup currently, where they. They saw something others uh, may have given up on to uh, to turn them into something. Let's There's do... a uh, subreddit on yep. Reddit that is called Former Mariners. And it's just everybody who was in the Mariners organization that all of a sudden got really good after they left the Mariners organization. And that has stopped kind of happening so much lately. You know what I mean? Uh, 
maybe yeah. hopefully because we were getting a little smarter at identifying the talent. That's so funny that you said that for, for two reasons, because A, we're going to uh, our segment, which is uh, Ex-Mariner of the Week, um, and I should rename this segment uh, Brandon spends uh, 25 minutes Googling to see if Gilmesh has done anything interesting in the last week, um, which is usually... I liked how, Gilmesh. I loved Gilmesh. Uh, I, I still remember when, when um, I don't know if it was Dan Wilson or somebody was like, Gilmesh is going to throw a no-hitter someday, and I held on to that for way too long. Uh, because he never did that, but uh, but yeah, so Gilmesh didn't do anything interesting this week. Um, so I have a few nominees for uh, for X Mariner. One of them being uh, Mister Justin Smoke, who was uh, I was at what did the, he do? I was at the Red Sox game on Thursday. Yes, Thursday uh, with a buddy of mine, and uh, Justin Smoke comes up to the plate, and I'm telling talking to him about you know what had happened and how he was doing well until his his dad passed away, his first full season in baseball. Uh, it was never the same guy since. And then shortly after saying that, Justin Smoke went yard in front of my very eyes in Fenway Park. Um, he's, good for Justin. Yeah, yeah, good for him. He's he's a two time All Star. I mean, he's or at least is he time. really? I think it, maybe just one time, but yeah, he uh, never made it with the Mariners, did he? No, no. He no. had one. He had one good year with the Mariners. Remember? Yeah, he had he had one good half year with the Mariners until. Yeah, maybe that's what it was. Uh, Same with Dustin Ackley. But then my other nominees would be Edwin Diaz, who is seven and zero in his appearances for the Mets. Uh, the Mets getting exactly what they paid for, uh, and then Carlos Santana. Remember him, who was never yeah. officially a Mariner. Is he a, is he a former Mariner? Does that count? I think he counts. I think okay. he counts. He uh he's hitting so three eighty three for the Indians with an OBP of uh of five oh nine. So we will see him tonight. Uh, you know that's that's yeah we will see him tonight, and I wonder who is going to end up being the better player between him and Edwin Encarnacion for a full season. Yeah, it's it's uh it's a heated race. Yeah, it's close right now. Do you have anyone for X Mariner of the Week? Oh, I certainly do. Have you seen the movie Screwball? Uh, okay, I could go a, a lot of time about Screwball. I won't. Uh, we should let's let's watch Screwball. Give the people a little bit about Screwball, but then in between uh, this episode and next week, we're gonna watch Screwball and spend uh, one of the outs talking about that. How about that? Okay, Screwball is an absolutely fantastic movie. Um, you should really watch it. It's it's. Would you say it's about a rod? I guess it's about a rod. It's a about sense, it's right? about the influx of of PEDs in baseball. Right. So one of the guys that was caught in the same uh, sting as a rod, and when all these when the you know the proverbial shit hit the fan, um, with all the PED stuff coming out. Do you remember a guy? I mean, you might not even remember him, but his name was Ryan Franklin. The, for the Mariners, of course I remember. Yeah, yeah. You remember Ryan Franklin? He was. Kind of, I don't know if a lot of Mariners fans would remember who he was because he really wasn't like a. Ryan Franklin was was in the uh, the Joel Pinheiro uh, starting mm-hmm. rotations with like he, he was in Mesh. that era. Yep. Yeah, Gil Mesh was in that era too. Uh huh. Yeah, good times. But Ryan Franklin was part of that whole sting. Ryan Franklin went to the same clinic as a Rod. So why didn't Ryan Franklin turn out to be good? <laughs> Ryan Franklin uh, spent all his his steroid en- energy dying his his uh, his beard red when he tur- became a uh, St. Louis Cardinal. That's 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 why. All right, fair enough. <laughs> but I just liked. Ryan. I thought that was so funny that he was like in that same class of guys with like Bonds and A Rod. And oh, yep, there's Ryan Franklin. Yeah, uh, yeah. I can't wait to talk about Screwball. I know a little bit about the film uh, from a production side, so we'll uh, we'll expound on that next week. But uh, but interesting to know that that. Uh, Rye guy is a part of it. 
Uh, let's hand out our fedoras this week. Uh, Ruben Alaniz is obviously a uh, an easy target here. Not necessarily his it, fault as we went yeah, over. Yeah, I'd hate to give it to him because he's so new, and it's really not his fault. He should have been pulled before he did that. Our friend uh, Eric Jensen is a great candidate for he, – uh, he got upset because he was asking for credit for – you know how last week you, you came at me with the um, – uh, which Mariners or which players have had three innings or three errors in an inning. Mm-hmm. He, he took credit for giving me that stat in a group text and not me just ignoring it. Um, <laughs> pretending to be excited when you said it, uh, which may or may not be, may or may not be true. So uh, I'm going to give the fedora to, to Eric for, uh, for, for asking for credit. And then also at the same time, not having the courage to come on the show. Yeah, I was going to say, if anything, Eric gets the fedora because he just he's he's sniping us via text message instead of actually manning up and coming on the show. <laughs> yeah, well, he knows that if he comes on the show and actually hits us like that, he will be banned from the show. So he's he's just biting <laughs> his time and his tongue. Uh, oh, I can't. I want Eric to be on the show. Eric is going to provide a nice foil for for the <laughs> for the geeky stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then my other fedora candidate would be Jeff Passan for dooming us with that article. I was going to, that was going to be my yellow, or that, not my yellow hydro, my fedora, because how, what was the other one? That, uh, uh, remember there, I think, what publication was it? But uh, it was kind of the reverse curse with the Seahawks, where some publication, it's now famous, gave them like a really bad grade. Like, I think they gave them an F on, um, on their draft when they drafted Bobby Wagner and Bruce Irvin and um, I think Russell Wilson and yeah. I don't know if Richard Sherman, but anyway, they gave them an F. And then those guys go on to be like, you know, maybe the cornerstones of the franchise for the it's next 10 famous. years. Yeah. Yeah. So anytime there's a bad thing written, I'm, I'm happy about it. Anytime there's a good thing written about us, I start to tremble a little bit. Yeah. So that first year with Russell Wilson, it was interesting because Bill Simmons randomly picked the Seahawks to win the Super Bowl that year, Russell Wilson's rookie year, um, because he saw like five minutes of one preseason game and fell in love with Russell Wilson. Um, so there was that going on. There was some, some juju there, but then also some, some, you know, uh, overreaction juju or the other way of saying that Russell Wilson was going to be a bust and, uh, and all that. So yeah, interesting how that works. Um, but I do vividly remember the, the, the 538 article that was saying the Mariners are going to make the playoffs. Like it was, <laughs> it, was it wasn't even like, oh, it was the a Mariners declaration. For the playoffs. Yeah, it was a declaration. Um, and then, uh, the, uh, yeah, the Fernando Rodney express, uh, took that season over. Yellow Hydra my, of the week. Go my, ahead. My, my real fedora, though, is the muscle group, the latissimus dorsi, which is your uh, lat. Because that is the second Mariners pitcher that has hurt his lat this year, and I'm done with it. They, uh, no more lat no more lat strains. It is claimed uh, Wade LeBlanc, Mr. Crafty Lefty himself, and also Hunter Strickland. Yeah, so I'm done with those. Yeah, no more lats. We're just cutting them out of the picture. Uh, Yellow Hydro... The, you had a great text line this week about how Mitch Hanniger makes you feel safe uh, yeah. when he's in the lineup, and he had an, an absolutely killer week this year. This week, three thirty three, eight fifty two, one one nine seven slash line, seven ribbies, two game winning hits against Kansas City. Uh, Mitch Hanniger is uh, is at least one of my yellow hydras of the week, which is good because I think I wouldn't say I was concerned. Because I'm, I was as concerned as you could be over a week of baseball, which is to say not very much. But he didn't look as sharp as he normally did. So it's good to see him kind of get off that schneid. Yeah, he's he had some hits that were just incredible. I mean, the, the, the way he goes low for hits is different than Vlad Guerrero Yeah, you said, you said that he hits the squat rack a lot, huh? Yeah, like Vlad Guerrero would do that just, I feel like, all wrists, just getting getting the ball, getting the bat that low. Whereas mm-hmm. Mitch Hanniger does it just by, by squatting down and, and you know, getting after it that way 
but yeah, Mitch Mitch had a great week, and uh, yeah, it was it was kind of crazy because the offense was performing so well before that, kind of in spite of Hanniger not stepping up quite yet. Um, but then last week he was really the uh, the 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 bell cow for the offense, which was great to see. My other yellow hydro of the week is uh, Rob Friedman. Do you know the name? No. He is uh he is a Twitter personality at Pitching Ninja and he posts... Oh, he's Pitching Ninja. Okay. Yes. Now he, I know. Okay. He is an awesome Twitter follow. He posts incredible gifts and sequences of of uh of pitchers with just throwing absolute mustard uh throughout the league and uh is a must follow for anyone who doesn't already. Um and every single article I read about baseball now includes like 15 embedded t- tweets from Rob Friedman because he's so good at it. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I, I like I like that one. I now my next ne- next week I'm gonna look up my favorite Twitter follows and I'm gonna I'm gonna give my uh, yellow hydro to that because there's a lot of good people in the Mariners Twitter sphere. I've thought about doing that of like asking people in basketball like who are, who are you know like ask some really good basketball writer of like what are your top ten resources that you use but mm-hmm. I, feel like, I feel like they just wouldn't do it. You don't think they doubt, they don't you don't think they divulge that information? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just it's not in their best interest to do that. They might. Give yeah, but you if they're going to help out a youngster, you know. Yeah, but I'm saying like put it out there for public consumption. Oh, put it out there for public. I thought maybe like just pay between me and you type of thing. Yeah, yeah. No, no, not like that. I could I could do the thing of saying like I'm some 16 year old kid who really wants to be yeah, yeah. <laughs> really wants to, like, to be you. What did you see that uh, kid, the Australian kid who wrote like a, a letter to the CEO of some gigantic Australian airlines about like how one day he's going to own an airline too, and that like they were going to be competitors and stuff like that it was really cute. If you if you haven't seen it, you should look it up. Oh, I thought there was a twist to that story coming that like that kid was or that so quote unquote kid was actually some 45 year old guy. No, that would be smart, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, who am I going to give my yellow hydro to this week? I haven't really thought about this one. To Mariners fans for, for uh, coming in on Intermezzo? That could be it. You know who I want to give my yellow hydro to, actually, now that you mention it? Hmm. Is the bar right across from us, and I'm sure you've been to this place. The Triangle? It's called, it, no, it's called Cowgirls, Inc. Oh. Have you been there? Uh, I have not. That's my, where my brother's uh, 21 run was, though. Okay, well, they're doing a promotion based on Mariners wins. I think it's like every time the Mariners win, they have like half-off beers. Wow. Yeah, so hate to give a little um, prom- promotion to my competitor, even though he's really not. They're like a club. Yeah. I mean, the name is Cowgirls, Inc., for those of you listening. how It's, it's, it's you know, use it is your, exactly what you'd expect it to be. Use your imagination, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. Employee of Cowgirls, Cowgirls Inc. put uh, 21 welts on my brother's tukus. Um, <laughs> uh, God, when that have been? Uh, like 15 years ago. So my brother's old as hell. Um, yeah, well, it's a place. It's an institution that stood the test of time. Yeah, clearly, clearly. Uh, this is also an institution, man. What was this? Six, six or seven of these in a row. We're killing it. I think it is, and I am enjoying every single one. And I hope everyone else is too. I know Eric is, based on the amount of vitriol that he's been spewing but i think that's just that's just him lashing out uh, the listener base is so small that we could start calling out people one by one and uh and really get some good engagement well i like i kind of like having a small little listener base but we'll grow it absolutely we, yeah, ju- we just got to be patient the content they'll, is they'll recognize our genius exactly they, they will come they will come uh all right phil thank you so much for doing this go ems uh, let's take it to cleveland get back on the horse and uh we'll talk next week yeah let's go ems take care
Hello? Hey. <laughs> My computer was just freaking out. I hit record shortly after you said, whoa, otherwise that would have been an awesome soundbite. <laughs> uh, have you stopped crying yet? I have. But I will say, every the, the Masters Tournament Twitter posted like a four-minute video of, from him making the last putt until he walks into the clubhouse, and I've watched it probably 15 times, and I, I think I cry every time. So what moment hits you hardest because it's kind of like a Rorschach test of where you are. Is it, is it the putt or is it the hug? Oh, when, when he hugged Charlie, I lost it. Yeah. I mean, it, Tiger Woods is a very strong man, self, self-made strong. And I was kind of worried for Charlie's life there for a second. He, he had a, a, a very strong squeeze on him. Yeah. I've, I've been watching golf my whole life and tiger has been my favorite athlete my entire life and i've i've never seen him that excited so we're uh we're we're rolling here and i want you to to say what you um what simone your fiance told you um, (laughs) (laughs) about about your tears yesterday uh she, she said if tiger woods makes you cry this much you better cry at our wedding <laughs> uh, which is just awesome uh, did so are, is simone a golf fan at all uh kind of yeah she, she she knows the players and storylines just because i watch golf so much right so how did how did it hit her watching that um I mean, she was kind of in and out of it, but yeah. I, she she thought it was really cool, which I think speaks a lot to what yesterday meant to not only the world of sports, but to this country, I think. <laughs> it's pretty wild, man. Th- this would be... Th- there's There's truly nothing like it. This would be like if LeBron had this incredible, like, horrible thing of his own devices that kept him out of playing basketball for five years on so, top of massive physical damage. Uh, and then he came back and then beat the warriors in the finals. So I, you yesterday, you texted me and said, can, can we talk about this? And I was, I was in no shape to talk about it because uh, the hyperbole would have been flowing out of my mouth. Like, <laughs> But I, I've been thinking about it for an entire day, and I texted you about 25 minutes ago, and right. I I legitimately think this is the greatest sports story of our lifetimes. So what what is second place, if that's the case? Because I I, I struggle to even think that there's anything in the in the ballpark of yeah, this. There is there isn't. I don't think there is. It's. I've never seen people like a collective group as the entire country being that collective group, like this excited about any sporting event ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's because there's, there's been a large buildup to this and yeah, there's, for, there's so many layers to the story. Yeah. For, for all intents and purposes, like Tiger Woods was the PGA player of the year in 2013. Like that, that in itself, if this had never happened and Tiger doesn't win another major, you could have pointed to that and said, well, 
you know, four years after the injuries and after the, you know, fiasco with his family, that he still gets back and is a, is a very, very good golfer again. But considering- exactly. There's, there's two kind of layers to this story and it, it starts in 2009 with, you know, all the personal issues with his family and the infidelities and all that stuff. But he, he rebounded from that and was playing at a level that we were accustomed to seeing Tiger Woods play golf at. I mean, he almost won the 2011 Masters. Mm-hmm. Like, like you said, he was player of the year in, in 2013. But then after that, I mean, his, his body completely breaks down. And there were times where people very close to him in his life thought, you know, like he's never going to be able to swing a golf club. Like we're legitimately worried he wasn't going to be able to walk. His back was so bad. And there, there were people in his life that were questioning, you know, is this guy ever going to be happy again? Because he can't, he can't do the one thing he loves and that's play golf. And so to see all of that, you know, happen. And then there was all this talk of the last few years of, Oh, he's back. His, his back feels good. He's going to be able to play golf again. And then in 2017, has fusion surgery on his spine, which I don't even fully understand what that Doesn't means. Sound legal. Yeah, and and then has the DUI, and I mean, he has said at the Champions Dinner at Augusta in 2017 was the worst he's ever felt felt in his life. Mm-hmm. From that point to then, be able to win the Masters two years later is it's unbelievable. So yeah, the the one of my favorite sporting events of my life was the two thousand nine U.S. Open, where he beats Rocco Mediate in the playoff. Two thousand eight. That was two thousand eight. Okay. Yep. So the the last major he had won before yesterday. Yeah, uh, I skipped school that day. Yeah, that was like the end of the end of uh, like sophomore year of high school, um, mm-hmm. and it was it was perfectly like right at the end of the day. It was in a playoff. It was just, it was just, you got unfiltered him because it was just him versus Mediate. And so it was just half of the, of the broadcast. And it just, we weren't there yet with him. He was always a part of the fold, but to have him there on Sunday down the stretch, I mean, CBS, Jim Nance, Vern Lundquist, all of them were just so ready for that to be the case again. And so for, for golf to have, you know, survived, not that it's ever going to go away, but in between that moment and yesterday, and he's still a part of it and still a major part of it. I think the sport of golf is the happiest of, of just about anyone about all of this. Yeah. And I mean, we went through a time there where it was like a legit question of, you know, is golf ever going to be the same again? And we, we kind of got, some stars back in the mix. We got Rory winning majors. We got Jordan Spieth emerging. We got Brooks Kepka winning three out of five majors. So it was like, you know, we have guys, we're in a good place finally on tour. And then to throw Tiger back into that. Yeah. Golf is the PGA tour. Couldn't be happier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of, a lot of guys who are kind of born, out of Tiger. I mean, Tiger... When yeah, broke... everyone, everyone on tour right now is a product of Tiger Woods. Exactly. Everyone on tour wanted to be Tiger Woods. When Tiger was was at his 
apex breaking in, he was off the tee a psychopath compared to the rest of the field. Now the people that he's up against are driving well past him, even though he's, yeah. <laughs> he's still, he's still very, very good at that. Um, and so that's just kind of, he's created this new baseline where everyone's 320 off the tee and that's just kind of the way it is. Uh, but his mental yeah, game yesterday kind of refigured his game because he can't hit it as long as some of these guys now that, yeah. I mean, he's, he still hits it a mile off the tee, but I think if you had to ask, pick someone right now, he's probably the best short iron and, and mid iron player in the world. Mm, yeah. Some shots he was hitting yesterday into those pins were unbelievable. So 16, right off the tee, par three. He was one up at that moment. Yeah, he had, he had just taken the lead with the birdie on on fifteen, and right. that was that was the first time he had had the solo lead. And then it it was like peak Tiger was just he he said to himself, "I'm I'm going to kill this thing right now," mm-hmm. and and did that. Yeah, yeah, it was it was great. I mean the 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 field around him. I mean. The, uh, kind of the point I was going off of earlier is that in his absence of the, you know, 11 years since it had been since he won a, uh, a major, you have the rise of guys like Dustin Johnson, and Rory McIlroy, and, and you know, just the, these uber talents, guys who, who could probably, you know, if it was just about the driving range, look better than Tiger did before. But his mental and just acumen of of knowing the course and knowing exactly what to do is what separates him and it always has been and so for that to still be on display after an 11 year basically hiatus from the major stage was was just i think the coolest part of like the game of golf has risen like the the rising tide of of the rest of the talent around him but he still was able to get it even though his his physical ability wasn't as as high as it used to be yeah there were there were a couple moments where that really stood out yesterday the first being after Molinari dumped it in the creek on 12 Tigers stood up there and there was a zero percent chance he was doing the same thing you know he knows you you can't attack that pin on the right just put it on the green in between the two bunkers you're safe there and then again on 15 he's in the middle of the fairway it's enticing to go at that pin on the left but just just put it in the middle of the green two putt for birdie and and that was when he took the lead and then and then again on 16 he knows that that pin placement you just got to put it up there on that hill and it feeds down there and that i mean like you were saying he he knows that golf course better than anyone else that was playing in that tournament and and it showed down the stretch yeah and and his singular focus for you know he, he wanted to be a, a a championship level golfer again for a long time. We knew that obviously, but to know that that course meant so much to him, I mean, it looked no further than the highlight of him and his dad hugging and, and just the, 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 the exuberance that he felt there. So everyone in the world knew that yes, he wanted to win tournaments. Yes. He wanted to be on top, but to specifically win the masters as his break back in or when he breaks back in was, was just icing on the cake. Yeah, it, it couldn't have been more perfect. And then on top of that, like they're going to Bethpage in a month where he's won before, and then the month after they're going to Pebble Beach. And to think that 
like holy shit he could win the first three majors of the year is not like insane to think yeah yep and we haven't used him in our uh, our golf survivor pool which is probably the best yeah. part even though yeah. justin rose can suck it uh, serious <laughs> uh yeah so so that kind of gets to the last part of this which is did we just see a blip or are we about to see this kind of new tiger sauce where he is again, the best player in the world and should be the favorite for everything going forward? Yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's the big question. I, I think I, I just saw a stat. I was looking on Twitter before you called me, uh, the last four major championships. If you combine all of the scores, he has the best total score. I mean, he won the Tour Championship, which is essentially the best field in golf. It's the top 30 guys on tour for the year. So he's winning He's winning these tournaments that are the best fields with the toughest competition at the best courses. And I think that's kind of what we're going to see more and more out of him is he's just going to pick his spots yep. of, of the tournaments he wants to play in because, I mean, he doesn't need to go play – in 20 tournaments anymore he can show up to 10 15 the biggest ones and and compete yeah yeah he, he knows the game by now and and obviously that's a product of being a much older man that he can't just be firing on all cylinders every single weekend like like he could have been 15 years ago but um yeah the, i mean this 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 happening just kind of it just changes everything i mean you and i were texting with with uh, with buddies of course about the just th- this felt like Brooks Kepka's tournament, and this felt like Brooks Kepka's series of majors. But then, just like like Tiger didn't play out of his mind from that point forward. It was just kind of this steady, slow climb up. Um, but even I, I still feel like there's this, you know, the the presence of Kepka and Rory and DJ, these these really really talented guys. But the sheer fact that Tiger pulled this off even if it changes nothing about what his actual ability golf is a different sport today than it was yesterday. Oh, absolutely. And you could, you could feel it. You could feel it with the other guys out there that they were like, Oh my God, like I'm going up against tiger in a major on Sunday. And I think it got to a lot of them. It got to Molinari for sure. It got to Finau for sure. Yep. You could see moments that like the, after Tiger hit that shot on the 16th hole, Kepka was on the 17th tee box, which is right there. Mm, and the and had crowd to back away. going absolutely bonkers. He had to step off twice. Yeah, you could just feel those guys were were a little rattled by his presence. So is the uh, is the big culprit to to Tiger pulling this off the uh, the the storm system in Georgia for making it a three person group? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was. And I mean, I, th- I think that's a testament to the Masters and the tournament they run that they were able and willing to take that risk to do that. Because the, <laughs> I mean, could you imagine if if Tiger's first major victory was on tape delay and we couldn't watch it live? Yeah, there's just no way. And you, yeah. you could you couldn't do that with the age that we're in, social media wise. Like you could have pulled that yeah. off in '05, but. Um, yeah, that was, that was very, very wise on their part, even if, even if it would have ended up okay, regardless. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if he plays with just, cause who would, who would have been his partner then? Just, uh, Molinari. Yeah. So just say he ousts Molinari the same way he did on Sunday, 
but Finau is in his own group, doesn't have to play with Tiger, it might be a, a totally different finish. It, yeah, it, it it could have been. And I think, yeah, to be a shot back of those guys and to have both of them in his group, the guys he was chasing, it, it, they just melted under the pressure. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I just, just having the man in, in the black hat with the red top and the black pants it's out peak, there. It's peak tiger. It was, it was so awesome. Yeah. And there was a certain inevitability to it. Like you had all of the 18th to, to kind of mentally prepare for it. And then, so, you know, the, the results of 18 wasn't as, as, gripping as the emotional exuberance as soon as that putt went in and that was what no one knew it was going to happen um was that was going to be the biggest fist pump of all time if he made that par putt oh he so he was walking into it he was so ready what was the what was the whole i think it was on the man i don't even remember if it was on the front of the back but uh where tiger stepped into his putt because he knew he had it on sunday and you were like this it, it is it is on right now I think it might have been. Uh, I think it was eight. I think he birdied yeah. eight, and you could just tell, like, okay, this is about to get real on the back nine here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you knew you had you had thirteen and fifteen scoring holes, and then you know just just to the the factor of him being there before uh, that he he was good for a couple more scoring opportunities there. Yeah, and then he pumped one so far right on eleven. Yep. And he, he said, you know, get way right. It was like he knew that little shoot to the green was there. Mm-hmm. I've never seen that. I've watched the Masters every year of my life. I've never seen anyone over there. It was like he knew exactly where to miss if he was going to miss. It was unreal. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a master class, um, for, for lack of a better word. And, uh, yeah, I mean, what a week for CBS. You get uh, for Saturday and Sunday with Tiger in contention – and the uh, Virginia Texas Tech national championship game going into overtime in the same six day period. That is, that is, uh, that's a nice vacation for the uh, the big wig. Yeah, there. yeah. Jim Nance, man, the best week ever. Jim Nance has only has good weeks, so there there was there was nothing changing that. Um, yeah, what did you think of Nance's performance? He clearly went for the jugular with Tyler or with Tiger. Oh uh, well, he, he. I don't know if you saw. He made Faldo cry when they came on the air. And I think he was feeling himself a little bit, so went for it with with a tiger after the one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You had to know that Tiger was still in uh, in competition mode and knew exactly what Nance was trying to do. And he's like, "I'm not, I'm not giving you that." I'm, I'm I mean, st- this is something I could talk about for a while with CBS's golf coverage not being the best. But I th- I thought Nance and Faldo just kind of letting the scenes on 18 play out. Yep. They just say anything once that that putt went in was was pretty awesome yeah they, they felt like you were there yeah they were they were the tour guides at jurassic park you don't have to say anything you just you just yeah. let people look at the dinosaurs man that's that's all you need to do yeah and it was it was like four minutes of of silence just the crowd going absolutely insane it was it was awesome so last question and we'll we'll hop off here tiger woods will or will not break jack nicholas's major record I don't know, man. It's like if you would have asked me that yesterday, I, w- I would have said, "Yeah, ab- absolutely." But mm. it it's it's almost like winning the first fourteen were easier than this last five would be at this point of his career. 
I mean, I don't think anybody currently in golf is a safe bet to win five majors in the next seven years, right? No, there's just so many guys. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Like, like if you had to ask me the next five years, Masters champions, like I, Jordan Spieth's going to win another one. DJ yeah. could win one. Rory could win one. Yeah, look like, at that Look at that field yesterday, and look who still could have been involved in that field but wasn't. Justin Rose, I, obviously. Spieth. It, yeah, I texted you Thursday. I said, is is Brooks Kepka just going to win 10 of the next 15 majors? Mm, right, right. And Nance is probably not, but he has the talent to, and that's kind of the only point about this is that this isn't this isn't uh, a, a soft underbelly for Tiger to just mow through. Um, if I if it's I said not early two thousands PGA Tour anymore, exactly, exactly. It's not you know it's it's a it's a much bigger and better and 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 uh, and more you know analytical field than it used to be. Um, and it's like that because of him. He made it exactly. harder on himself. Yeah, right. While he was gone. Uh, he had already sown the seeds of golf to be this whole different breed of sport than uh, than he had ever participated in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, man. Like you said, we could talk this to death, but but uh, I'm glad I'm glad that the emotions finally finally you know at least 65 percent of the way left you, and that you could compose <laughs> yourself enough to get on to get on the air um, for to do this. It was it was awesome, and um, I'm I'm all the way in on on uh on the rest of the majors going forward who are we picking next week let's do it right now we're picking tiger next week uh i don't even know i don't even know what i've been so focused on on this week and i don't even know what tournament is i don't know it's been just a blur uh all right man we'll take care of the basic needs and then we'll figure that out uh, as, <laughs> as this goes on but uh but i appreciate you coming on all right man tiger yes, sir.